This is Attention Humans, the podcast of the University of Colorado Consortium for Climate Change and Health. Each episode, we explore the human dimensions of climate change with some of the leading experts at the University of Colorado and beyond. I'm Jake Fox. I'm Cameron Nicewander. We're your hosts for the show. It is our goal to help you, our listeners, learn about the health consequences of global warming. And ask you to get involved in personal and political efforts to slow climate change. As always, please check out our webpage, cuconsortium.org slash podcast, for episode summaries, show notes, and our comment box. Without further ado, on to the show. And this long line of cars is all because of you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Attention Humans. Today, we are excited to sit down with Dr. Lee Newman. Dr. Newman's career has followed a rather unconventional course. He earned his MA in social psychology from Cornell University, his MD from Vanderbilt University School of Medicine, and completing, completed his residency and fellowship training at Emory and the University of Colorado, respectively. In addition to many years of practice as a lung doctor, researcher, and clinical educator, Dr. Newman has made substantial contributions to the field of occupational medicine. Dr. Newman is the founding director of the Center for Health, Work, and Environment at the Colorado School of Public Health, the Mountain and Plains Education and Research Center, and the founding CEO and president of Axion Health, which supports employee health and safety programs. Currently, he's a professor in the Departments of Environmental and Occupational Health and Epidemiology at the Colorado School of Public Health, a professor of medicine at the CU School of Medicine, and a member of the CU Consortium for Climate Change and Health. Dr. Newman, thanks for being here with us today. Uh, did I miss anything important in your biography? No, it was just too much. That's okay. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Okay. Thank you so much. So we like to kick off these interviews with this question. Uh, how much trouble are we in? That's a long pause, and that's deliberate. Yeah. Uh, you know, I heard a lecture just this morning where uh, the first 50 minutes of it was all about why we should be depressed because we're, we're in big trouble with regard to the climate. Uh, and I hesitated because uh, it can result in a kind of paralysis. So, yes, we're, you know, we're, in, we're in trouble. And um, uh, the, the turnaround is going to be tough. It's like Will Rogers said, when you find yourself in a, in a hole, stop digging. Uh, we actually have to be putting some of the dirt back in that hole. And whether society can pull that off is going to be seen in a short period of time. Uh, absolutely. Uh, we face, I think, some considerable challenges in the coming coming years, coming decades. We wanted to interview you because you have far-reaching expertise in medicine and occupational health. So you have, I think, an intimate perspective of issues that affect workers. How does climate change affect worker health? It's a big deal. So if you think about any exposure that we might have as your average person on the planet, uh, by and large, workers get it worse. They have worse exposure. And uh, if we're going to observe health consequences, we're going to often observe it first in workers. Take, for example, uh, lead. You know, we, we allow a certain amount of lead in the atmosphere for your average person. Uh, we actually permit workers to be exposed to much higher levels of lead. Now let's take this to, uh, to climate and worker health. Uh, we, we have, many of us have the option of when it's too hot, uh, when it's too humid, when the weather is too extreme, 
of getting out of it, of trying to seek shelter. Uh, if it's your job, you're going to keep doing your job. And so uh, I, I generally think of all workers as vulnerable because they have an expectation that they have to do their job. And placed in the context of heat extremes, weather extremes, uh, increasing pollution, uh, having to be the person on the front line to respond in the, in the face of the threats from the climate, uh, we're, we're placing every one of us who is in one of those jobs at risk. No, thank you for explaining that. And regarding vulnerability, I've heard you speak before about workers are, they're also especially vulnerable because of how much time we spend at work. You're going to spend, <laughs> well, in, in your career, you're going to spend half your life at work. <laughs> but uh, for, for most people, uh, we may spend uh, a third to maybe 40% of our lives at work. And as adults, uh, it's, you know, it's certainly the case. Um, and, uh, and as a result, you sort of ignoring that part of your life uh, is, you know, makes no sense. I mean, you know, you, we have to be thinking uh, about our 24-hour cycle and, and the things that contribute to uh, our health and well-being across that 24-hour cycle, of which a big chunk is your work. Absolutely. Uh, so in other words, uh, we spend a third to a half of our lives at work uh, where we could be exposed to some of these new risks that will be um, we'll say, amplified by climate change. Right, and they may not even be new risks. They're, they, you know, very often they're the old risks, but just compounded. Uh, you know, so uh, we're already uh, sitting here in, you know, in Aurora, Colorado, exposed to, um, you know, more millisieverts than somebody at sea level. Yeah, I, I, I sort of tried to put that in. Oh, now I have to explain what the cowbell's for. But I was trying to use my voice to suggest air quotes, um, uh, so radiation units um, uh, are, you know, we have a higher exposure to radiation at this altitude. Um, now, you want, it, you want me to explain the cowbell? That would be, be excellent. I'm sure uh, the uh, listeners are befuddled at the moment. Befuddled? That, that, that is might that a be cowbell close. Word? No, no, I don't think it is. But uh, the reason for the cowbell is that I teach a course on, on communicating public health. And, uh, and when students come to class, they're all given a little mini cowbell so that any time somebody uses jargon, uh, the cowbell gets rung by the people in the audience. And um, that's a great way to get people to kind of clean up their speech and make it understandable for the general public. Um, so um, putting millisieverts in quotes, a unit of radiation, as an example. Um, you know, back to my point. Uh, you know, we, we might say that uh, a small amount of that is something that we consider an acceptable risk uh, here in, uh, in Denver, Colorado. But if, if ultraviolet radiation increases, if our radiation exposure increases, if we're forced to work in conditions that have higher surface radiation exposure, uh, you know, on the ground where we're working, uh, that ends up compounding an already existing risk. I see and the same thing uh, with, you know, with, with air pollutants. So you can say, well, we're all going to have to be, be breathing more air pollutants. Uh, but if you think about people who are doing heavy work, heavy manual labor in, in agriculture or uh, ranching, uh, in construction, we're breathing harder, we're breathing faster, we're actually inhaling more particles of air in an eight-hour work shift than somebody who is uh, sitting behind a desk or sitting at home on the couch. So, you know, compounding 
the exposure resulting in greater potential harm. I see. So if, for example, I'm a highway worker, uh, you know, working along the front range corridor where we're out of ozone attainment and we have high levels of particulate matter on certain days, uh, my exposure and risk of a bad health outcome might be higher because I am, you know, breathing more of that substance than, say, someone in Aurora who's behind a desk. Yeah, I, uh, you know, uh, maybe a better example would be uh, diesel particles. Okay. You know, the, the stuff that comes out of the tailpipe. I see. So a lot of our listeners, Dr. Newman, are um, here in Colorado. So can you walk us through what types of workers might be at higher risk of adverse health outcomes in Colorado? Sure. So here in, here in Colorado, um, it's going to fall into the categories of uh, people who are doing outdoor work predominantly. So um, people in, in ranching, agriculture, logging, um, the, uh, the the other category would be people who are uh, doing other forms of outdoor heavy manual labor. So uh, you mentioned people who are on you know uh, road crews or doing construction work. So these would be uh, high risk uh, industries, and we're already starting to see that you know, when when we look at who experiences the more extreme acute forms of of uh, heat related illness. The, the folks who end up in an emergency room with, with heat stroke, uh, it's coming from those people who are uh, having to be out in exposed conditions, um, sometimes also having to carry and wear gear. Um, and uh, they're just trying to do their regular job, but it's, it's hotter and it's more humid. So that can include um, uh, people like uh, people in police, for example, uh, people where you know, a certain amount of their day, think about who's outside all day as part of their job without a lot of option to get out of the heat when it's too hot to work. Um, the other category are the people who are workers who are involved in uh, responding to the uh, emergencies that arise, right? The, the conditions that are caused by or triggered by um, uh, climate change. So for example, uh, wildland firefighters, those are workers. Uh, and uh, um, firefighters in general, um, emergency response personnel. So these are some other examples of folks who are, by virtue of the fact that they're there to respond to these weather extremes, and we're having more of those weather extremes, it's putting them at more frequent risk. I see. Oh. So a, a lot of these um, risks you just described, I would categorizes climate change directly affecting worker health. Can you talk about some of those secondary effects that might affect workers? Sure. There's some, there, there are a number of them. They, they, they fall into a couple of different categories here as well. So uh, as we have more and more uh, climate refugees, who are the refugees? They, they are people who can no longer uh, tend their fields, um, uh, raise their livestock. Uh, they are going to increasingly be displaced from the land that is both where they live, but also where their livelihood comes from. So as we experience more and more climate refugees, as we have forced migration, uh, we are costing people their, their lives, their livelihood, uh, their connection to community, and you know, the resultant uh, psychological and social impacts are, are you know, quite huge. And we, we have other examples of that uh, um, you know, around the world, 
Uh, we don't see that as often in Colorado, although we're, we're going to probably start to see that. The other thing I want to mention is that there's, uh, there are workers who are going to face some unusual secondary risks as part of the uh, attempt to help mitigate and adapt mm -hmm. to climate change. So think about, for example, um, if, we, if we move to wind power, well, somewhere out there in the Denver metropolitan area uh, are workers who are uh, building the, the blades for these huge wind turbines. And that involves them being exposed to um, new chemical hazards. They, you know, they very often use things like uh, a chemical, which is called, in quotes, uh, isocyanates. And, uh, and these can cause people to have asthma and allergic reactions. So, uh, you know, so in the process of coming up with solutions, we're going to be uh, putting workers into work settings that may expose them to a new set of hazards, even as they're helping to mitigate the effects of climate change. Interesting. So as we adapt our energy systems, we need to keep workers in mind um, to, to prevent them from being exposed from the new hazards we introduce. Absolutely. Fascinating. You talked about some uh, potential psychological impacts of you know, displacement. Can you mention what those might be? Well, when people are displaced, uh, the, the, what we see happen is uh, we see increased rates of depression, anxiety, uh, uh, stress, and that stress is related to, uh, you know, the, to just physically being displaced, but also the financial stress, the dissolution of family structure. Uh, so you, you know you can it very quickly moves into the whole range of of psychological harm that can occur when you take someone and uh, they have to forcibly uh, move from you know the the life that they've known and you know there are stress scales and there are scales for depression and and every one of them when they when they look at life stressors these are the kinds of things that are pretty high on the list in terms of. Um, causing suicide, need for uh, people to, to take medication if they can get medication. Um, the flip side of it is they may have underlying uh, depression, anxiety, and upon moving may not even have access to their normal support system for maintaining uh, their, you know, to, to try to control their health problem. So if you have depression, maybe you can't get to the pharmacy anymore. Maybe you, you can't see a doctor. Uh, you've lost your health care coverage because you've lost your job. Uh, your, your family uh, is, is, uh, is scattered and, and less organized to help support you. So uh, these are all compounding factors that can cause uh, psychological harm. Wow. It's certainly myriad and complex ones. Perhaps my rudimentary understanding of economics is, you know, our national and global economy relies on workers. So can there be more macro-level economic effects um, related to worker health? There have been relatively few studies done directly looking at how climate and its impact on workers results in economic hardship. Uh, the, there have been a, a few studies done, and then a lot of modeling, a lot of um, you know, fairly sophisticated modeling to try to look at the impact on, um, on worker productivity which then, you know, if productivity drops, translates into economic hardship for the country. The thing that I find interesting and what we've studied has been looking at how um, people who are workers, when they're exposed to heat extremes, uh, 
we've actually been able to measure its impact on productivity in uh, the sugarcane cutters in Guatemala. And what we found is that uh, as, the, as the temperature rises across a six-month harvest season where they're out there six days a week cutting sugarcane, as the temperatures rise, their productivity goes down, which shouldn't surprise anybody. But then add in another factor. If they start the season with a pre-existing health condition like chronic kidney disease, their productivity is hit even harder. And when that happens, it translates into less of that crop being harvested. And if you, if you now extrapolate that into the bigger picture, what it really suggests is a risk for food security on the planet. There are already other things around climate change that are affecting the, the quality and the amount of crops that are produced on the planet that are going to be produced in the future. Add to that now the compounding effect, effect of harming the health of the workers. And when you harm the health of the workers, them becoming less productive. And when they're less productive, there's going to be less commodity produced, which is economic hardship, but also food insecurity. For the rest of us. For the rest of us. And for them in their communities. All the reports that come out talk about vulnerable populations. We talk about the very young. We talk about the very old. We talk about people who are economically disadvantaged. Uh, you know, there are those kinds of categories, and the reports are lengthy about the potential harm to them. And, and I don't want to dispute that. I think that's all absolutely true. But what's pretty roundly ignored is the vulnerability of workers, especially people who are outdoors on the front line or who have to respond to the uh, emergencies that are, that are becoming more frequent. Dr. Newman, I want to shift gears a little bit. You've gone over a lot of these risks that climate change will pose to uh, workers. How can we protect workers? Yeah, that's, a, that's really a great question because um, a lot of what we need to do, we already know how to do it, but we just have to have the awareness and do more of the same. So what do I mean by that? We have a way of thinking about how an employer or an industry should go about protecting the health of, of any worker. And we, we think of it in terms of, first of all, educating the worker about the hazards that they're facing, um, giving them protective equipment where that's appropriate, having administrative controls. And by that I mean, before you ring a cowbell on me, <laughs> um, what, I, what I mean by an administrative controls is limiting the amount of time that you spend exposed to hazardous conditions. Uh, and uh, and ideally, uh, substituting uh, a safer environment, right? And that's the hardest part. You know, getting rid of the hazard that you're exposed to is the hardest part. But if you think about it, if we think about our sugarcane cutters in Guatemala, uh, we talk about uh, changing the, the length of a workday, shifting the hours that they work to being earlier before the hottest part of the day comes. Uh, we talk about providing uh, shade breaks, right? Those are administrative, that's an administrative control. And providing shade is a, is a form of reducing exposure to the hazard, right? So, so there's a structured way of thinking about the hierarchy of prevention, which is the, the term we use for it in public health, uh, a, a list of measures that we can take to try to protect people. And so what we have to be creative about is how do we do more of that? Um, now, one thing is an example. Probably the, the, the most obvious one is... Uh, looking at the recommendations that we have now from OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, around how do we uh, protect workers from heat extremes. 
And when I say heat extremes, I mean heat, humidity, you know, surface radiation, uh, you know, uh, wind velocity, the sum of which is the experienced effect of, 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 the, of the meteorologic conditions. Um, uh, OSHA uh, has guidelines that are, that are soon going to be irrelevant. And in parts of the world, in large parts of the world, are already irrelevant. So if I, if I take the sugarcane workers down in Guatemala that we've worked with for the last three years, uh, if we use the recommended cutoffs for temperature uh, to say, oh, above this temperature, you should be resting for 45 minutes and working for 15 minutes, no work would ever get done because it's always, almost always, above that temperature for the eight-hour shift where these cane cutters are out there you know, cutting six tons each a day. Um, under hot conditions. So, you know, so, and, and as, as the planet warms further, uh, you know, that solution saying, uh, you know, from OSHA saying, oh, just don't work, is, is going to be increasingly nonsensical. So um, even the water rest and shade recommendations that we use for, uh, you know, to, uh, for folks, no, we're in more extreme conditions. We have to be replenishing them like we replenish people who are out there running marathons. Can you give them a sense of, uh, for our listeners, how many liters of water some of these workers are drinking? Yeah, the workers in Guatemala are drinking 14 to 15 wow. liters in an eight to nine hour shift. Try doing that sometime without, without getting sick. Um, and if you do that with just, just water, without replacing your electrolytes, uh, you're going to be in trouble. Absolutely. Uh, you can get to the range where you could actually start having seizures because your sodium in your blood goes so low. So my point is you have to be, we have to be rethinking uh, what is going to be needed in terms of workforce protections. And we can use the structure that we have, but we're going to have to be um, you know, more mindful that, um, that those guidelines are, uh, have to be relevant to the real working conditions that we have. Thanks, Dr. Newman, and I hope our listeners recognize the importance of protecting workers with some of those suggestions you outlined. Can I ask you more broadly, how can we address climate change? Well, step one is what we're doing right now, is for the, the awareness to be there. I, I, you know, we're, we're at a point now where if someone's listening to this, they already know that this is a problem. This isn't a belief system. This is a data-driven system where we know it's a problem. So, uh, but there are, there are uh, still going to be people out there who may not know. Uh, and if they don't know, then we have uh, an obligation to be communicating that. Uh, the, the second thing is we have to have uh, practical solutions for people. So, like I said to you earlier, you know, 45-minute lecture on, on how bad it is uh, can lead to a kind of paralysis. So, um, people increasingly... Uh, you know, doing things that show that they are able to, um, to in their own micro way. I mean, public health is local, right? So what I do as an individual, I have to believe that if I make that effort and people around me make that effort, that, you know, that there's actually some, some hope for us. So, uh, you know, cutting down on your consumption of meat. Uh, you know, you're, you're, a, uh, you're a, a compelling example of somebody who, who you know, rides their bike, uh, and, you know, people who are, you know, willing to uh, compromise some of the conveniences of a very privileged society in order to make a small individual dent uh, in our impact on the planet is the kind of thing that people need to hear about. How do we train the next generation of scientists and professionals 
to get involved with climate change? Uh, well, I, I see it through the lens as a communicator. As a journalist, you didn't mention this part, I was a journalist before I ever went into uh, medicine or public health or any of my other suspicious careers. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, it's so, so through my lens, we have to start with communication. Uh, I think that uh, scientists are tragically ill-trained in how to communicate complex ideas to the general public. People really do want to hear what you have to say as a physician, as a scientist, uh, but they tune out really fast. So understanding how to uh, develop the empathy for your audience, which means understanding whether they are getting what you're saying and if you are in return understanding what they're saying is a starting point. And we're trained to put everything into jargon and into uh, our lingo of our field. That's how we establish kind of the, the pride that we're part of that club of scientists. Got to break it down. We have to unpack that. We have to make it clear. Um, that, to me, is a, a large part of it. Uh, uh, I think setting the examples, you, you think about the products that you buy. Think about um, how things are marketed to you. We need to have people have a very clear idea about what the ask is. What is the action that you're calling on them to do? And understand that sometimes that has to be incrementally done. And sometimes it's by mandate and law and sometimes it has to be through persuasion. So again, it comes back to communication skills as well as having regulations and, and different kinds of you know, ways of engineering a solution. Well, thank you, Dr. Newman. Really appreciate your time today uh, and your, for sharing your expertise and for arming me with this cowbell here. All right. Hey, use it. Take it with you and use it with your other interviews. Oh, I will do that. All right. Thanks. Sure. For our listeners, that is it for this episode of Attention Humans. Please check out the website for our show notes. Otherwise, we hope you'll tune in next time. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Attention Humans, the podcast of the University of Colorado Consortium for Climate Change and Health. We unpack the human health dimensions of climate change and emphasize the urgent need for all of us to get involved. We want to thank Dr. Rosemary Rochford and Dr. C.C. Sorensen for their mentorship on this project. Ellen McFarlane and Matt Cook for technical support. Cake for the jam and theme music. Our awesome guests for sharing their expertise. And you, our listeners, for paying attention. See you next time.